Hi, I'm Bijan, and you're listening to the third episode of Undisturbed. At this moment, we, all of us, are experiencing one of the greatest disasters threatening our lives. The novel coronavirus has shown us in less than a year that human beings are nowhere close to controlling the nature. These tiny virus particles are haunting us way harder than we thought and created an imbalance in our economy, health system, and every other aspect of our social life. One of the reasons so many believe that we haven't been able to defeat this one phenomenon is simply that the economic system we are living in has so far mostly taken care of maximizing its financial benefits over anything else, and therefore has been unable to create efficient infrastructures to protect humans from death. The young capitalism that surrounds almost all aspects of our lives is nothing but a regulated slavery system in which the privileged get more than the general public and its ideology works in a way that people who create the values in the society sometimes believe that they should sell their body, sell their labor power at its best, to be able to live a better life. Capitalism has failed to protect us by creating enough hospitals, enough healthcare capacities, and enough attention to human needs, but also is limiting us even more blaming each of us for transferring the virus to another. The ability of this system to concur the spread of the coronavirus is beyond fair. To fight the unemployment of millions of people and decrease in their quality of life, they have injected teeny tiny amounts of money to the society instead of really protecting it. One small thing that capitalism could do is to just take some money from the super-rich and inject it to the ever-growing number of poor people to create a temporary balance. But the ruling systems wouldn't even do that. They believe that it is essentially legitimate for the rich to get richer by sucking the poor's blood, and the poor is to blame because they are poor. The same argument that was used in economic systems before capitalism. The fight against the competitive markets and capitalism as an economic and political system has been there since the system was born. Socialists were fighting against this illegitimate system before people like Marx could articulate the fight. In the recent years, neoliberalism has overcome most of the political systems throughout the world and has shown that politics is nothing but a superstructure under which a whole system of unfair economy is based. But this fight has had different colors and different themes throughout the world. While armed movements in South America and East Asia confronted capitalism on an existential level based on a minority of professional revolutionaries, in recent decades the struggle came out different in Central Europe as well as the US. My agenda is to bring these colorful tendencies 
through colorful voices of political activists around the globe to see who has done what and what are different strategies. For this reason, today I'm bringing you a voice from the US. Mohammad Porabdullah Tutkabuni was a student movement activist in Iran and moved to the US in 2013. I did a casual talk with him last month and asked him some questions about the way he looks at the fight. Let's see what he has to tell us. So my name is Mohammad Purabdoda Tutkaboni. I'm known in the English-speaking uh, context, Mohammad Tutkaboni. Um, I'm uh, 36 years old. I was born in Tehran, Iran. I r- grew up in Rash in northern Iran. I was uh, from 2002. I was a student at the uh, University of Tehran in chemical engineering. And uh, very soon I found myself interested in politics and theory and 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 political activism, and I joined uh, an official leftist organization, uh, student organization, uh, which uh, caused me some troubles. Uh, I was arrested and prosecuted for that, and eventually also uh, expelled from university. And uh, uh, I spent three years in prison uh, as a result of my activism. And uh, after that, I was forced to leave the country. And uh, I left Iran in 2012 uh, and I applied for asylum in Turkey. And after a year and a half, I was resettled in the United States. And I've been living in the United States since then, since September 2013. Uh, in the United States, I uh, started again uh, uh, school and I started again uh, my college. And I was able to get my college degree and make to grad school. And uh, since 2019, I've been uh, a student, a PhD student in sociology at Johns Hopkins University. Well, in, uh, for Iran, I think we can maybe wrap it up uh, in, in this way. I was, uh, I, I got interested in politics uh, as uh, when I was a teenager. Uh, and that then there was this reform, the so-called reformist movement in Iran going on and kind of brought politics into streets. And I, I remember being a teenager and, uh, you know, following with a lot of interest what was happening in Iran. Uh, and obviously, after a few years, uh, I got delusioned, uh, disillusioned by, by the reformists. And I realized that they are not actually going to deliver what they promise uh, to people. And um, this was around the time that I was getting into college. I was at the age of 18 and 19. And uh, through friends, I got interested in uh, theory. Uh, first, it was uh, you know, pure theory, pure metaphysical theory, like philosophy. But then later, it got, uh, I, I got more interested in political theory and social theory. And I got interested into uh, works of Marx and Engels and others. And, and after, after a while, I found myself uh, uh, as I, I identify myself as a, as a Marxist and a socialist. And, uh, and that's where uh, simultaneously, I have to say that uh, there were uh, changes, political changes in Iran. Like it was 2005 when Mahmoud Ahmadinejad was elected as a president. That was a kind of a scary moment for people from different political perspectives in Iran, and I was among them. And uh, that's where I, I actually felt that I should get more involved in, in politics and 
we joined, then I joined this uh, group of friends uh, who uh, were the, the kind of the, the, the central base for this leftist organization in University of Tehran. In terms of the type of activity, act, activism that we had, it wasn't something uh, strangely different from other student activists around the globe, I think. We had demonstrations inside university campuses, we had magazines, we had uh, reading groups, etc., etc. Uh, what we were preaching in our uh, activism was a somehow radical uh, version of left, uh, I would say, I think, a revolutionary socialist ideology. Uh, and uh, the main point that we were trying to make was that the, the uh, opposition, the main opposition to the Islamic Republic is uh, kind of a nationalist, liberal, capitalist, maybe pro-Western um, opposition. And we were against them, uh, just as we were against the, the Islamic Republic. Uh, uh, and also, of course, on, on the other hand, there were, and there are still are unfortunately political currents in Iran which think that uh, foreign intervention, like an American invasion or something, could be uh, liberating. And of course, we were uh, against them as well. Um, this is the general line of, I think, uh, our my ideology back then. Uh, it was a time when left was dead in Iran uh, as a result of, as a, as a consequence of suppression, brutal suppression of the left in Iran in the 1980s. Um, so I think when we got involved, when we got into activism, when we found ourselves as a serious, kind of a serious student group, it was the first time in Iran after at least two decades that someone was talking about socialism, about justice, about equality, etc., etc. And in that regard, I think we, were, we did something very novel and, and, and something new. And, and I think that's exactly why they, we were treated so harshly and we were punished so harshly. introduction on your political and your theoretical work? There are very substantial differences. Uh, one is that, of course, in the United States you are uh, being active, and I think it's, uh, it's the same probably in Europe too, in Western Europe at least. Uh, you are being a political activist under a very democratic situation, right? Uh, and, and that's important because you know that there, you have some basic rights, you have and the consequences of your action are probably not that severe, uh, or at least that you know the con what the consequences are. Of course, I know that there are many, many cases of people who uh, fall into very serious troubles uh, as a result of being an activist, but I think generally we can probably uh, accept this uh, distinction between democratic and non-democratic political system. In a non-democratic country like Iran, you might go for a demonstration and you end up in jail for a few years. Uh, so that's the main difference. Uh, but 
it actually from this follows many other differences, I think. Um, difference in ideology, difference in perspective, difference uh, in, in, in many different things. I think um, in the United States and in the West, uh, the left is more democratic for sure, but also uh, more involved in identity politics, more involved in uh, the type of politics that are uh, not that much popular in a country like Iran and, and I think in many countries in, in the Global South. I think in, in Global South, for uh, in, in many countries in Global South, the left is still uh, defined in the, in theoretically in the way that it was defined in 1970s uh, with a more classic perspective of uh, you know Marxism being the, the central uh, school or central tendency, central ideology. Uh, but in the, in the global north, and especially in the United States, uh, what has happened is that over the past 20, 30 years, there has been a shift away from Marxism and from other structuralist perspectives. Uh, and the reason for this shift was that uh, Marxism was uh, allegedly dismissive of many different aspects of social life. And, and the people who uh, are pr proponents of this shift, they had argued in the past 30 or 40 years, we need other uh, political approaches and theoretical approaches to be able to include other aspects of social hierarchy and social injustice, the issue of uh, you know, gender, uh, the issue of race, etc., etc. Uh, so this was actually one of the main differences, I think, uh, for me as a as a as an uh, you know political activist in exile. When I went to United States, first few years I was uh, trying to uh, get into politics, any uh, the, in any uh, potential uh, you know uh, capacity that I could participate in demonstration, whether it was for. Uh, you know, Black Lives Matter was for for Palestine, for for everything basically, and I still do it. But uh, I I think now I'm I have a better picture of what politics is in the United States, and and actually what is wrong with that, uh, and I think actually there are a lot of things wrong with that. <laughs> uh, for that reason, I think I'm now more into my own theoretical world and uh, kind of less uh, directly involved into activism that I'm critical of. I'm, uh, I'm a second year PhD student. I'm um, generally interested in uh, economic and political sociology. Uh, I'm interested in studying social movements and uh, also economic structure of societies uh, in which social movements arise. Uh, I think I, I have done some research on Iran and Iranian revolution and uh, and, and, and I've tried to answer this question, why Iranian revolution uh, turned out the way that it did, uh, the result of the revolution. I think I would, in, in my future research, I would like to uh, shift away from social movements and from the issues uh, of you know, the Middle East and Iran and do more theoretical work on, on class structure of the society. Uh, maybe I would like to. I, I would be able to do some uh, empirical work on the class structure of American society, and I think I would like to defend uh, a theoretical perspective based on Marxian class analysis.
against uh, many other mainstream uh, theories and perspectives, for, for example, the, the so-called stratification theory. This is my general interest and my general maybe passion, uh, but I'm still a second year student in PhD and in, in United States PhD programs are five, at least five years, so I'm, I'm still, it's still too soon for me to say what exactly I'm going to be doing. How do you observe the anti-capitalist movements in Europe? And how are these movements different from the anti-capitalist movements in the U.S.? Well, I think uh, they're not that much of a fundamental difference between the, the, the leftist movement in the United States and, and Europe. I think it's classically seen as left being more powerful in Europe, at least in continental Europe, than in the United States, which is definitely the case historically. But I think in the past 20, 30 years, the uh, roots of radical politics has been eroded to the level that it actually obsolete both in the United States and, and in, in Western Europe and you know, North America and Western Europe. Um, so in that regard, I don't think that there is a fundamental difference between them. Uh, actually, if there is, in my view, if there is any hope for a real anti-capitalist politics, that hope exists in in the United States or the UK. And you could, you know, I think see the glimmers of those hopes in, uh, the, in the presidential campaign of Bernie Sanders in the United States and also in, in the uh, movement around uh, Jeremy Corbyn and Labour Party in the UK. Continental Europe, as far as I see them, it's, uh, uh, it's not really... Uh, I don't see any, uh, unfortunately, I don't see any... Uh, organized movements against capitalism at, at, at macro level, of course. And micro level, of course, there, I think there could exist and there probably exist many different meaningful movements. But on the macro level of the politics in Germany, uh, in France, in Spain, in Southern Europe, in Eastern Europe, I don't really see any political uh, anti-capitalist uh, serious movement and I think the reason as you said as you hinted to and it's I, I find it actually interesting that uh, people around me people like you people who were with me in Iran um, in uh, they, they were involved in radical politics in Iran they come to the very similar conclusions when they immigrate to Europe or North America they all see it uh, this way that, that we, what we see is a is a politics which looks very radical, and it wants to evolve all the type of anti-oppression and anti-discrimination politics. But in effect, what we see is uh, only a focus on identity politics uh, and the type of oppression that uh, you probably can do something about them. Uh, and away from, uh, you know, an anti-capitalist policy, a type of oppression that presumably you cannot do anything about it. And I think that that's, that's a very important cause of this change. Since 1970s, I think 
there was a decline in um, globally in social movements and in anti-capitalist movements, and there was a, a, you know ever more widespreading belief that capitalism is something unchangeable, and because it's unchangeable, people and people on the left, uh, without probably knowing, they, I think they started to learn how to live with it, and they started to to seek other forms of radical politics when anti-capitalism is, is not, you know, possible. And what are those? They are in the, in the so-called other di dimensions of oppression, gender, race. I have to say that, um, of course, the fight for gender equality and racial equality are as central and as important as the fight for uh, economic justice. It's usually, Marxism and Marxists have usually been accused of having a kind of a, you know, prioritizing, like uh, putting economic fight uh, on top uh, and then looking at the other types of uh, oppression as secondary maybe, like, as if there is a, there is a central uh, contradiction in the society, which is between capital and labor, which is economic contradiction, or they will resolve themselves. That, these are the things that Marxism has been accused of. And of course, there have been many Marxists in 20th century who, who actually thought this way. But I don't think that that's, that's not in the Marxism, in the, in the core of Marxism, and that has not actually been the case historically. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a big pity when I see a lot of young people today, when they talk about Marxism, they usually start with saying that, yes, Marxism gave us a lot of things, but Marxism was dismissive of the issue of women, for example. And it's, it's a pity because I think it's, it's, a, the, it's a result, it's a consequence of not being really aware of the history of Marxism and not being aware of the history of the country that these people have been living if you are living in Germany and you think that Marxism hasn't done enough for women, means that I think it means that you, you are not aware of your history. If you read your history of German socialist movement, you can probably see that German socialist movement was the main, one of the main advocates of uh, women's rights and women's liberation when these issues were really important. I mean... When, uh, when the fight for women's liberation uh, was actually getting uh, you know, very serious in late 19th century and early 20th century. So there is this fake history that they want to, uh, people wrongly assign to Marxism, and they make very incorrect con conclusions based on that fake history. Uh, that's, I think, one of the uh, one of the reasons that ra radical politics has changed so much. But uh, the other one, as I said, was that uh, capitalism has shown to be much more resilient and powerful than many people thought. And that actually made a lot of people think that, well, capitalism is unchangeable. So let's go do other things.
Germany, as you said, has a long history of fighting against the capitalist system. But I don't see any prominent anti-capitalist movements in Germany. Why? Is it because of capitalism's superpowers, as for example, merging all the demands of the left into the maze of regulations and social democratic bureaucracies? Or is it because of a lack of strong theoretical work? Well, it's, it's hard to measure, uh, extremely hard to measure and, and say, you know, how much of weight can you give to each, to each factor? It's definitely both. Uh, I think it would be nice to look at it a little bit historically. Uh, as I said, since 1970s and 1980s, with the onset of neoliberalism and, and changes in, in global political economy and erosion of welfare state in, well, uh, in Western Europe and er actually erosion of developmental programs in global south, that's another thing that is usually forgotten. Uh, there has, uh, fighting capitalism has become harder. But as a result of this hardship, theory has conceded. Theory hasn't been able to provide a solution. First of all, theory hasn't been able to understand why this fight has become such, so much harder. And then, because it hasn't been able to understand, it has also not been able to, uh, to give a, a solution. Like, how do we fight capitalism now in these new, very hard circumstances. And of course, I don't mean to suggest that I have a solution. It's, it's definitely the central question of the left today. Um, you know, uh, the level of uh, uh, organization in the working classes today is the lowest since uh, at least 75 years, if not longer. Uh, and the level of income, uh, level of economic inequality is the highest in, in history. Uh, so there could be a very good question of with this level of inequality, why there is so, uh, there is not so much going on in the, in the anti-capitalist movement. Why labor movements are non-existent or very, very weak. Uh, so this central question is, necessarily has to be addressed and, and I don't think that anyone has a you know, simple answer to this. It's, uh, finding an answer for this would require a process of intellectual work for a generation at least. I think first step is to look back at theory and kind of try to see how theory conceded and how theory actually theorized and rationalized somehow these changes uh, instead of being active instead of being uh, uh, you know instead of taking the direction of solving an issue the, the, the theory I think uh, accepted that they cannot solve an issue and because they cannot solve an issue it has to rationalize it has to you know give it another dimension or meaning or color and, and I think this this is particularly the case with rise of postmodernism in in Europe and especially in France, um, uh, and then which later spread to almost all spheres of social theory. Uh, again, issue of economic justice, issue of gender, etc., etc. Uh, so, what theory has to do now is, first of all, argue and show 
that this both postmodernism and everything else that uh, kind of stems from postmodernism look the uh, show the discrepancies and 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 deficiencies and uh, you know inaccuracies in in their accounts show them in my view some of the gr very grave mistakes that they make theoretically and try to move forward from there try to to see the situation as it is today the the reality of the world and to try to provide uh, solutions first step just want to re-emphasize that you actually uh, make yourself able to see the situation, right? Um, the see real problem. The problem with the left is that it's so much immersed in uh, this kind of debilitating uh, theory, like postmodernism, that it's blind. It doesn't see uh, where it's standing. It doesn't see where the problems stand. So first you should kind of wash your eyes, try to see afresh and anew, and then I think you, you, you will have a long road of, of uh, trying to find the answer to the questions. want to bring about real change, who should we call? Can, for example, people of color be the agent of change only because of their identity, namely the color of their skin? What about gender identities? I think there is a very important misunderstanding here, again, the issue of agency. Um, let me put it this way. For Marx and for Marxism, uh, working class, the workers, do have definitely an agency. But Marx actually shows why he thinks that those have, they have those, they, that agency. Uh, well, they have the agency because they are at the center of modern economic life. Our economic life, uh, which is the central component of, of our life, the way that we uh, you know, live and survive and reproduce ourselves is deeply depends on the work of people in the society and the social uh, the social level the the work of people uh, the the amount of uh, of work that people do and what they produce. Marx's uh, idea, central idea, maybe I can put it this way, was actually very simple. Was uh, Marx was saying that because workers are the people who are actually producing everything that we need everything that we consume in the society, they have the central power. But this, that central power has been taken away from them because someone else is benefiting from the, from the result of their work. And that's, that's what Marx called exploitation, right? So if you are an employer, you employ someone, and that person works for you, and uh, the surplus that that employee is producing is actually yours just because you were the employer and you probably because you had, uh, you know, you had uh, ownership of the means of production, right? You only give that employee a portion back f for him or her to survive and, you know, to reproduce himself or herself. Marx was basically saying that because you are producing something, you should be the one. If you get, get together and if you organize, if you have a 
uh, strong labor movement, you will be able to, to tell to the employer that this is me who is producing this, the, uh, producing this, and as a result, I should have this and that benefit, and eventually when we get to socialism, as a result, I should have every benefit of what I do. This, this is the essence of uh, economic oppression in modern capitalist society. But that's not the same thing with, with other aspects of oppression, with gender and race, necessarily. Uh, if you are a woman and you go to society and someone who is sexist looks at you, uh, and doesn't give you a job just because you're a woman. This is a grave and unacceptable discrimination against you, but this is not an exploitation of you. Uh, let me emphasize here again, because that's something that it's usually mistakenly inferred from this uh, perspective that I say. It's not about which one is more important or less important. It's not about women's issue being less important or more important. It's about where do they stand in the general scheme of the society. Why this is important? Because uh, if you are economically independent, if you, are, if you are economically powerful, if you have empowered yourself economically, then you can do many other things. If you don't do it, then your, your, the, the capacity to do other things is also diminished. Let me give you an example. It's usually uh, said and argued that in 19th century it was women in, in Western Europe and North America who started a movement and uh, they were able to gain many of the rights. They were able to you know, achieve many of the things that they, women deserved. Okay, the question should be, in my view, what happened that women were living under unequal and horrible conditions for centuries and they were not able to say anything, they were not able to change anything? What happens that all of a sudden in 19th century and in Europe, women start to claim their rights. What happens? Some people would say that it's actually, uh, and you know, what happened was a, was a kind of a political education, like uh, they get, got enlightened. Uh, and, and this is at the heart of many political theories, like you enlighten people, they know their rights and they, they rise up. I think Marx and Marxism would say that, no, actually it's not only enlightenment. There should be some economic structural necessary conditions for change to be met otherwise that change will not materialize and Marx and I, Marxists I think maybe not explicitly but that's how I think that's what I read from Marx was saying that capitalism is actually giving you many many different capacities the, the central capacity is, of course, for workers to unionize, to, to get together, etc., etc. But there are many, many different uh, consequences of this central capacity. If you're a woman and also a worker, means that you probably can sustain yourself 
you, you much less dependent to your man compared to the case that you are, you know, staying home and you're a housewife. Because bringing women into economy gave them a lot of power, I think, I mean, this is an, a, a speculation, but I think it's a very probable a, a speculation. That's one of the main reasons that women's movement was actually able to do anything. So, to, to put it another way, I think there is a necessary condition uh, for all the movements against different type of oppressions. Uh, but it's not the sufficient condition. What is that necessary condition? Is that any social change at the level of society uh, should be seen and should be measured uh, against the, the central logic of that society. The central logic of a capitalist society is profit-making and profit-maximization. Uh, I think what you can maybe conclude is that there are different sources of oppression in the society. A gender oppression, I think, can be divided into two sections. There is a part in gender oppression which has an economic reason behind it. In, traditionally, the nuclear family has had an economic function. Uh, if you don't have a, a very unequal gender a, a, you know, ideology and belief, if you don't think that women have to stay home and take care of children and everything else, uh, you as a peasant, and of course I'm idealizing here, uh, but you as a peasant will have a problem. Why? Because you would not have enough children, which means that you would not have enough uh, labor force on the land, etc., etc. So traditionally there has been uh, an economic reasoning, economic um, uh, you know, logic behind uh, gender oppression, also racial oppression. Uh, in the modern times, what has, what has happened in the, since 19th century is that there has been a capacity for change in this dimension. What do I mean by that? When the modern economy changes, when women get into the labor market, uh, when they have their own income, the main tool of a man to oppress the woman is gone. What is the main tool? If you are, if you are uh, a woman and you are married to a man in a, let's say, traditional society, and he is abusive of you, why should you not leave that, that circumstances, that, that, that place? Well, there are many reasons for that. First of all, because you probably have internalized, you have accepted this ideology that this is what, you know, good for you too. This is what women are and this is what men are. Second, probably, is that you think that if you want to go, if you want to leave, you will not have any viable source of survival. You cannot do it by yourself. Why? Because the society judges you, because you don't have an income, because your family would not support you, etc., etc., right? So what has changed since 19th century, I think, is that this second condition has eroded, uh, relatively, of course. Because you have income, because the traditional values of societies are changing, 
you can tell your abusive partner, your abusive husband that, you know what, actually I don't want to stay in this house with you anymore. I can go and rent my own place and I don't really want to see you again. That's it. Uh, in a, almost a, all, every country which has gone through this transition from traditional society to more modern society, you see a, a rise in, let's say, rates of uh, divorce. Why? Well, it's not because people are, people's relationships are getting worse. It's because it was actually bad, but they couldn't get out of it. Now they have a way, they have a tool to get out of it, right? Uh, so this is what I call the necessary condition. Economic suppression is the necessary condition for agenda suppression. If you want to have an effective social policy against gender oppression, it should include economic issues as well. You can't have a, a, a policy for making society more equitable to women or to racial minorities if you don't include uh, something in that in your program, your agenda, which economically empowers women or people from that racial group. And again, this has been the case in history. That's, that's the case always in history. What has been seen in the past 30, 40 years is that actually this section of fight against gender and racial equality, that has been eroded. You don't see that identity politics focuses that much on the economic necessary condition of fighting racial hierarchy and racial uh, oppression. What has happened in past 30, 40 years is that identity policy has affected uh, the discourse of uh, movement for racial equality and gender equality, and it has moved it away from the, from the, dis uh, from the previous discourse, which emphasized the ne this necessary condition. Uh, it used to be the case, you can see it, let's say, in, in, in feminist movement, you can see it in the waves of American feminist movement. The second wave of American feminist movement in the 1970s, they had a, an, an emphasis on uh, economic factors. They were arguing that if women want to become socially independent, they have to have equally paying jobs. They have to have they have to gain their rights economically. The third wave movement, which starts from the 1990s, actually moves away from that. So identity politics doesn't think that that economic necessary condition exists. Identity politics wants to focus on your mind, on the way that people think and conceptualize you know, racial or, or gender oppression. So for identity politics, the issue is, is something psychological, something I would call it ideal. It's not material. You are racist because you have been socialized this way. You are sexist because you have been socialized this way, because there is, there is an ideology. Everything is about ideology, how, how the mind works. And of course, it makes sense for them, because the only thing that they focus on is, in my view, uh, the elite politics. Like if you think that a, a woman who is a CEO makes less 
money than a man who is a CEO, which is probably the case in, 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 in most countries. And if you want to explain this, why? What would you do? Well, you, 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 you should say that he's a woman, the same power, same structure, the same position in the economic structure, everything else, but he's making less money. Why? Because the people who are hiring her are biased. And because they are biased, they are discriminating against her. So your politics becomes a politics of anti-discrimination. The only thing that you focus on is this discrimination, right? While in reality, they are dismissive. They don't actually see what happens to the rest of the society. So what has happened, in my view, in the uh, past 30, 40 years is that uh, newer generation of uh, activists and movements in the racial, uh, movement for racial and, and gender equality, they are unaware or dismissive of this very central uh, condition of fighting against uh, discrimination. If you want to have, if you want to improve uh, this, this, this status of women in German society or the status of Turks or Arabs in German society or any other society, uh, if you want to have an effective politics uh, which affects everyone, you should include some economic aspects. You should include some economic programs. Otherwise, the, that woman who is from a Turkish family and wants to liberate herself from the oppressive system that she lives in would not have any tool to do that. What happens if you remove the economic factors from your, from your agenda? What happens? Well, what would happen is that you only focus on non-economic issues, which are, I would, I would call them mental issues, right? I would, mental aspects. Like you would focus on educating people and enlightening people instead of giving them the tool to liberate themselves. And I think what follows from that is that your politics actually moves away from being a, a popular politics to be, becoming a, an elite politics. What do I mean by that? If you remove the condition, the economic condition, which is necessary for the masses to liberate themselves, you are basically giving only an, a theoretical and ideological uh, apparatus, a tool, to people who already have the economic power to liberate themselves, and they are the elites, right? So if, you, if your program doesn't give anything to female workers and it only focuses on discrimination against women in, let's say, in, 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 in uh, economic uh, activities, what, does it, what would that uh, lead to? Well, that would lead to the point that women who do not have that economic power to liberate themselves will, won't be able to do that. Only women who already have that power would be able to use and benefit from, those, uh, from, from that ideology. And they are the women from the elite. They are the women from upper middle class professionals, you know, CEOs and everything. There is so much focus on, um, you know, on, on uh, income discrepancy between male CEOs and female CEOs, or you know, not only CEOs in, in, in other levels of high professional jobs. So much focus on that, which is of course important. But uh, 
that focus comes at the expense of dismissing and actually ignoring the reality uh, of the society, of the masses. I would say one of the most prominent forces against the authority in Germany is translating itself in the language of intersectionality. How do you see the role of class intersections in the fight against capitalism? Also, what is your definition of class? I think my definition of class is the definition of class that Marx and I think every other Marxist have had so far. There are different def definitions actually of class. Uh, there's a Marxist definition, there's also Weberian and other, other sorts of de definitions. Of, but I think Marxist definition is probably the most known one and I think most useful one. And, well, the, that definition, I think I, I hinted to it all, already, is that class is a, a group of people who are all together in a similar relation to the means of production. Uh, so, for Marx... The very basic uh, antagonism in the society is between uh, those who control the means of production and those who, because they don't have the means of production, have to sell their labors to the, to the first group. Uh, the first one are capitalists, the second ones are workers. And of course you might say, well, that's not uh, how society, uh, that's not how society is organized. Like society is much more complex, we have middle class, we have this and we have that. Which is all very true, and we can we can you know uh, we can talk about how can a Marxist perspective actually understand something like existence of middle class or you know petty bourgeoisie or, or you know, owners operators or whatever else you want to call them, and I think it's 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 definitely consistent. But the the central uh, definition of class is what I what I just said, and it's important because as I said, it's important because. Uh, class actually, uh, a class analysis gives you uh, a good lens of seeing where the power in, in society is and how can you leverage that power to, the, to get the changes that you want. And that's, I think, the, the main reason that the class is important. Again, uh, if you want to compare class to other sorts of uh, oppression, uh, it's not that class is much, you know, more important or less important, uh, or you know, or the class oppression is worse, uh, or or income inequality is worse, or this, this kind of thing. That's not the reason. The reason that is more important is that it's essential uh, for making changes into all, all other aspects of social life, including gender and race and other things. Going back to the politics in the US, and as the last question, Please tell me a bit about Occupy Wall Street movement that sparked in 2011 and the Black Lives Matter demos recently. I think Occupy Wall Street was uh, 
very important because it was a symptom of an, a rising inequality that has had been dismissed and neglected for 30 to 40 years. Uh, Occupy Wall Street was a movement, was most, mo- mostly a middle class intellectual movement. I think it got less roots in the working classes. But it was the, the people who were coming to the streets and, and uh, uh, you know, uh, protesting. There were people who, in, let's say in the 1960s and 1950s, they would very well fit into American uh, middle class. Like they were people who could uh, have economic prosperity just by having a middle class job. And that, of course, has changed in the United States. In the United States, in the past 50 years, there hasn't been an uh, increase in the real wage uh, of workers, uh, which means that people are making much less and people have less purchase power today uh, in, in, compared to 50 years ago. So I think that that's the main source of that movement. Uh, they were... Uh, they were signs and symptoms of a changing economy. Uh, what, was the, what was the result? What was the, the gains of that movement? I think, as I think everyone else knows, the Occupy movement evaporated very quickly because it wasn't organized, it wasn't rooted in the working classes. But I think, nevertheless, I think it was very uh, positive. It had the positive outcomes in American society and the Western society because it brought the issue of economic justice and economic equality kind of back into politics. Uh, you, in the United States, you see that as a result of Occupy movement, you will see uh, you know, a growth in um, many different socialist organizations for the first time in, for the first time in past century. Since 1920s, you see someone who calls himself a socialist can uh, you know, rise to the highest level of politics in the United States. I think these are all uh, consequences of that movement and similar thing in Europe. Uh, so it was, a, it was a good starting point, uh, but where you get from there is, of course, another issue. And I mean, as we talked about it, I think uh, this also really depends on the, the, the way that you theorize everything and the way that you... Uh, what you put on your agenda, etc., etc. This is a, this is all about what well, uh, the Occupy Wall Street movements and and what Occupy movements around the globe uh, in 2011, 2012. Um, over the past year in the United States, there has been uh, protests for racial uh, justice. I definitely think that the, those protests were justified and valid. I supported them, Black Lives Matter protests. But uh, I, I don't think that I agree with everything that they, they were asking and demanding. And uh, I don't think that I also agree with all of the way and the technique that they were using. Uh, just occupying somewhere, like occupying the main street or the, or, or the main square without anything else doesn't really get you anywhere. Uh, and I think there was a little bit maybe too much of emphasis on this. And it generally is the case. Like uh, we always think that if you go and sit down in the streets and, and blockade uh, a road or anything, something radical would happen. I'm not dismissing this as an option. Of course, 
that's something that should also always be a part of any political movement, uh, you know, actions such as this one. But they can't be the sole uh, you know, tool. And it has been the sole tool for many people, like in Portland or you know, in, in other places in the United States. And it kind of slowly becomes a, a cult. Like uh, you think you're very radical, you go and you, know, you occupy some building and you do some crazy thing, you, you, get into, you, know, you might also get violent. And then you think that you're changing something radically. Uh, I think I'm, tr I'm trying to emphasize that that radicalism is actually very superficial, doesn't really, you're not actually changing anything at all unless you, uh, you supplement your action with other types of actions which are necessary for change, for a serious change. Any movement uh, which really wants to change something, I think should first of all understand what is at the stake, what is the problem, uh, and second understand what is the you know what is what is the way that you uh, prescribe a change. How do you define? How do you design an agenda for political change? And what is the role of different agents in, in, in that? What is the role of you know different movements, movements for racial equality or gender equality? What are the, their connection to the movement for economic equality, to the labor movement, etc., cetera, etc.? Cetera. And I think that this all requires a massive organization in the society, uh, and and I think the central issue of that massive organization should be, as I have said, uh, should be economic justice. Uh, because that has been actually lagging. That has been not. That has not been going on in the past fifty years. Uh, so, all of these minor, uh, interesting uh, actions could become meaningful if they can integrate themselves into a much bigger corpus of political actions, which have a have a goal, which are in an alignment with each other, and and we have, which have an agenda, and. Unless that agenda exists, those uh, sporadic and uh, scattered actions, radical actions, will not get anywhere. It was a privilege to talk with Muhammad. There are many more voices I want to present on this podcast. If you think you know someone who should be featured here, please send me an email to undisturbed at medianfeelfault.net. Undisturbed is produced by me, Bijan Sabak, and is part of Colorful Voices Radios around Germany. The music of the podcast is produced by Jonas and Justus, fully diversifying and intentionally disturbing Kashmir's Undisturbed. Undisturbed is published with a Creative Commons license. Thank you for listening and choose.